Well, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you, as always, from my uh, <clears throat> apartment on the uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan, now in the wee mornings of January 15th, which means in the final five days, we hope of the Trump administration, or perhaps the final five days we hope not, of democracy in the United States. The <laughs> besieged, tottering, dysfunctional, rapidly declining democracy, which feels very much as if it is hanging by a hair. And we're going to see what happens over the course of the next five days. And of course, you know, I've already lost most of you who are just going to dismiss me as a paranoid freak, but I'm uh, feeling more and more like uh, the guy pictured in a New Yorker cartoon from a few years back, which is suddenly making uh, the rounds again on the internet. I just happened to stumble on it. Shows uh, two old bearded guys looking very much like myself in um, sitting around in an apartment lined with books, looking very much like my apartment. And one of them says, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. The famous quote from the Spanish philosopher Santayana. But then he goes on to say, yet those who do study history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it. <laughs> and boy, does that ever um, capture precisely how I'm feeling today. Sorry. And as I look at the events which, are, uh, which have been unfolding, in this country over, uh, well, particularly over the past week, but more generally over the past months, I find myself uh, wondering if the more appropriate analogy for America in the year 2021 is 1933 or 1861. I hope most of you listening are um, astute enough to get the historical references and the uh, the really disturbing thing about it is that I'm actually hoping, if those are the only choices, that it's going to look more like 1861, which means a total disaster. Because the disaster of a second civil war in this country would be the preferable disaster to that of a fascist dictatorship being consolidated. So uh, the first thing I'm going to argue is that what happened last Wednesday January 6th, was, in fact, an attempted coup d'etat. And I reject all of the, um, you know, equivocation and hesitancy about using that word. A coup means an attempt to affect a change in government through extra-legal means. So by this, you know, narrow and rigorous definition, I don't see how you can argue that it was not an attempted coup. And furthermore, it is not over. As I am ranting right now, again in the wee hours of January 15th, there are five more days before the scheduled inauguration of Joe Biden. So using the past tense to refer to this episode is not quite right. And it is certainly not quite right, or at all right, to use it to refer to the Trump presidency, because he remains the president. And critically, that means that he remains the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And what happened on January 6th should be properly seen 
as the first step in an ongoing attempted coup. The question is whether the remaining steps will be taken and whether the coup will be consolidated. And I don't claim to know the answer to that question. But I do know that denialism of the reality and the gravity of the situation is making that outcome more likely. And as I've noted before, particularly ironic and telling, is that I'm getting this denialism both from deluded liberals and from the equally deluded hard-left posers who think they're so clever because they recognize the liberals as the real enemy, as they like to put it. By way of example, I will quote a tweet from a couple of days ago from Jacobin, one of the, uh, you know, official organs of the left establishment in this country, as it were. They wrote on January 9th, the riot at the Capitol on Wednesday was a symptom of right-wing weakness, not power. The real danger isn't a MAGA coup, but a restoration of the neoliberal status quo that produced the nightmare of Trump and his minions. Ay, ay, ay. So even now, after we just witnessed literally an attempted fascist coup, we're still getting this kind of denialism that the real problem is the liberals. See what I mean? The fascist abetting pseudo-left in this country is a part of the problem. This is how the left caves in the face of fascism. This is how the left fails the most critical test. All of my deluded liberal centrist friends are like, don't worry, it wasn't a coup. Biden will take office and everything will be fine. And all of my, you know, badass hard left friends are like, don't worry, it wasn't a coup. Biden is the real enemy, not Trump. <laughs> a pox on both your houses is all I can say. And I'm particularly impatient with this because, uh, you know, these are coming from the same people. These denials are coming from the same people who have been, you know, dismissing all of my warnings up to this point and, and, and two of my warnings going all the way back to 2015 when Trump first announced, have been vindicated. Now, initially, I dismissed the Trump candidacy as a publicity stunt like everybody did. But very quickly, it began to pick up steam and sort of take on a life of its own. I think Trump himself was, was surprised by this. But it soon became very clear to me, and I mean back in 2015, that the threat of a Trump victory was real. Now, I never made any prediction that Trump would win. I tried to avoid making predictions. But I was warning that it was a real threat to be met with all of this denialism and naysaying and dismissal, both from the Hillary boosters and from the Hillary bashers, both from, you know, the liberals who were boosting Hillary and from the, the radicals who were bashing her, were both telling me that they knew Hillary was going to win. The fix is in for Hillary. You don't have to worry about Trump. I heard that over and over and over again. And then he won. And after that, I did bend my usual no predictions rule and actually predicted that there would not be a peaceful transition in 2021. And I felt confident making that prediction 
because I know my damn history and I know how fascism works. Fascists do not willingly cede power. Period. It required no crystal ball. So now, both my warning that Trump could win back in 2016 and my, frankly, prediction over the past four years that there would not be a peaceful transition in 2021 have been vindicated. No matter what happens from here on in, there has not been a peaceful transition. That is a fact. The Capitol building was ransacked, and Washington, D.C. is being occupied by 20,000 National Guard troops. There's now more military troops in Washington, D.C. than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. So I know it's considered unseemly to say, told you so, but I feel justified in doing so. Because even now, after I have been twice vindicated, I am continuing to get this don't worry, be happy denialism from both the liberals and the radicals who think that they, you know, oppose each other, but in fact, they're saying exactly the same thing. And in the, in the five days remaining to us, this is such a critical moment. This is absolutely not the time for denialism. Okay, one thing I'm being told by the people who insist that it was not an attempted coup is that it doesn't fit the definition of a coup because the security forces were not actually in on it. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that that's a sine qua non of a coup d'etat. Like I say, by its narrowest definition, a coup d'etat is an attempt to a, uh, affect a change in government through extra-legal means. I'm not sure it's necessary that the security forces have to be in on it in order for it to be a coup. And secondly, I'm not sure that the security forces were not in on it. Okay, now there were police at the Capitol building who fought back, and one protester was shot, and one police officer was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher. But by now, we've all seen the video of police actually pulling aside the barricades outside the Capitol building and motioning for the rioters to pass onto the Capitol grounds. And we've seen the, uh, you know, the pictures of uh, Capitol Police at the, um, seen the pictures of Capitol Police inside the building who uh, allowed um, the rioters to take selfies alongside them. So it seems pretty clear that there, in fact, was complicity by elements of the security forces in this attempted coup, which apparently, according to um, some of the media reports that we've been hearing, and according to the text of the article of impeachment, that was brought by House Democrats. This attempted coup, which included plans to abduct and possibly kill members of Congress. And it isn't just me who is saying that the security forces were in on it. I'm going to start by, I'm going to go through some news clips. This is from uh, CBS News. House Majority Whip James Clyburn of South Carolina said that the ease in which rioters were able to get into the Capitol on Wednesday suggest that someone on the inside of the Capitol was complicit, quote-unquote, in the assault. I do believe that something was going on, Clyburn told CBS. They knew where to go. I've been told by some other Congress people that their staff were saying they saw people being allowed into the building through side doors. Who opened those side doors for these protesters, or I call them mobsters, to come into the building? not through the main entrance where magnetometers are, but through side doors. Yes, somebody on the inside of those buildings 
were complicit in this, end quote. So, is just Weinberg being a paranoid freak based on uh, videos I've seen online? Go argue with James Clyburn, who was there. Okay, this is uh, extremely ominous. Not quite sure what to make of this. From The Independent, uh, an investigation has begun into the removal of panic buttons from the congressional office of Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts prior to last week's storming of the Capitol by supporters of Donald Trump. If that's true, that's pretty scary. That means that this uh, plot goes pretty deep, planned well in advance of its execution by people on the inside. From National Public Radio, Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio says an investigation is underway looking at, quote, potentially members of Congress, end quote, who gave tours to pro-Trump rioters prior to the insurrection last week on the U.S. Capitol so that when they broke into the Capitol building, they knew where to go to find Pelosi's desk so they could, you know, put their boots up on it and pose for the cameras. Or potentially worse, potentially much worse, if the Congress members hadn't been whisked away to safety sufficiently in advance of their arrival in the chambers. Okay, more from The Independent. One of the organizers of the Capitol riot has said that his plot was aided by three Republican congressmen. In a now deleted video, conservative talking head and activist Ali Alexander said he worked alongside three Republican lawmakers to plan the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Mr. Alexander claimed representatives Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar, both of Arizona, and Mo Brooks of Alabama, helped him plan the protest that led to the attack on the building. He said its intention was to put pressure on lawmakers inside to overturn the election in favor of Donald Trump. All right, that's somewhat ambiguously worded. The protest that led to the attack on the buildings, meaning uh, Trump's rally on the mall, which immediately preceded the assault on the Capitol building. <clears throat> Maybe a little bit of wiggle room there. Okay, this from the uh, New York Times. January 11th, the outgoing head of the Capitol Police. This is concerning the absence of National Guard troops outside the Capitol. Now, it's my understanding that there were actually some, but uh, a small force which was um, completely insufficient and critically unarmed here to the text of the New York Times. The outgoing head of the Capitol Police requested that D.C. National Guard units be placed on standby in case his small force was overwhelmed by violent protesters last Wednesday. But he was rebuffed by House and Senate security officials and a top Pentagon commander. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund, who resigned under pressure last week, said he made the request two days before Wednesday's riot after reviewing intelligence that indicated the demonstration would be larger and more violent than previously anticipated and repeated his request as he watched rioters attacking his officers. Quote, If we would have had the National Guard, we could have held them at bay longer, until more officers from our partner agencies could arrive. Mr. Sund, who served in the top post for a year, under a year, told the Washington Post, in the end, the Capitol Police, outnumbered, was unable to hold back a mob several times its size, resulting in a violent invasion of the national legislature not seen since the War of 1812, by invading British troops back then, in the year 1814, actually. 
Representative Tim Ryan, Democrat of Ohio, told reporters on Monday that two officers had been suspended, one who took selfies with rioters and one who put on a Make America Great Again hat and directed rioters in the Capitol. Uh, Some talking points from that uh, previously referenced Washington Post story, the one that was referenced by the New York Times. The Pentagon placed major restrictions on the D.C. National Guard leading up to Wednesday's insurrection. The Washington Post reported, Officials curtailed the ability of D.C. Guardsmen to deploy troops, receive ammo and riot gear, engage with protesters, share equipment with local police, and use surveillance without explicit approval from President Trump's acting defense secretary, Christopher Miller, according to the Post. Guardsmen didn't arrive to support U.S. Capitol Police, who were ill-prepared and quickly overrun until more than two hours after its chief called for them, according to the Post. And by strong implication in the Washington Post story, the uh, Pentagon commander in question, uh, not explicitly named, but implied that that would be Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy, who serves as what they call the de facto commander of the D.C. National Guard. Okay, and finally, uh, I'm going to turn to um, a source which I don't really like that much because it tends to be a little bit gossipy and tends to rely on anonymous sources, as it does in this article. But with that caveat, nonetheless, let me read into the record a quote from Business Insider. The supporters of Donald Trump, who stormed the Capitol on Wednesday to stop the ratification of President-elect Joe Biden's election victory, were attempting a violent coup that many European security officials said appeared to have at least tacit support from aspects of the U.S. federal agencies responsible for securing the Capitol complex. Insider spoke with three officials on Thursday morning, a French police official responsible for public security in a key section of central Paris, and two intelligence officials from NATO countries who work directly in counterterrorism and counterintelligence operations involving the U.S., terrorism, and Russia. They said the circumstantial evidence available pointed to what would be openly called a coup attempt in any other nation. None were willing to speak on the record because of the dire nature of the subject. Well, I'm as suspicious as anybody is of um, reports that lie exclusively on anonymous quotes, but um, I would certainly agree with that uh, putative assessment that what we witnessed last Wednesday would be called a coup attempt if it happened in any other nation. And ironically, both the, you know, the centrists and the radicals here who were denying that it was a coup attempt are being blinded by their indoctrination in the dogma of American exceptionalism. Now, one welcome exception to this is Fiona Hill. Remember her? She was the uh, national security advisor on um, European and Russian affairs who um, testified before Congress during the uh, the last Trump impeachment, just a little over a year ago now, concerning the Ukraine scandal, and whose testimony was, in fact, very important in getting Trump impeached. And um, she writes in Politico a couple of days ago, yes, this is the headline, yes, it was a coup attempt. Here's why. Subhead. 
What Trump tried is called a self-coup, and he did it in slow motion and plain sight. Fiona Hill gets it. Thank you. My only quibble is that in her discussion of the historical precedents for um, a self-coup or an attempt by a uh, sitting wannabe strongman to illegally prolong his reign in power, she leaves out the defining example of a self-coup, the one in which the term was coined, auto golpe in its original Spanish, that of Alberto Fujimori in Peru in 1992. I believe that was the first use of the term self-coup, and of course it ushered in the beginning of a, a period of right-wing dictatorship in Peru, which lasted several years. I wish uh, that Fiona Hill had mentioned that, but uh, here's some text that she, she, some examples from her text that she does mention, reading from her article here. Technically, what Trump attempted is what's known as a self-coup, and Trump isn't the first leader to try it. Charles Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, nephew of the first Napoleon, pulled one off in France in December 1851 to stay in power beyond his term. Then he declared himself emperor, Napoleon III. More recently, Nicolas Maduro perpetrated a self-coup in Venezuela after losing the 2017 elections. In Turkey in 2015, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan successfully did the same thing. He had called elections to strengthen his presidency, but his party lost its majority in parliament. He challenged the results in the courts, marginalized the opposition, and forced what he blatantly called a rerun election, end quote. All right, now, in that case, you know, Erdogan at least attempted a, uh, you know, a cover of legality. And that was Trump, what Trump was attempting to do in all of his uh, efforts at a judicial coup, so to speak, all of his efforts to, through litigation or pressuring of um, <clears throat> state secretaries of state, and finally, the representatives in Congress, to get the uh, the election results overturned through, uh, you know, legalistic subterfuge. But now he may be resorting to um, a more classically defined extra-legal coup, a cool coup, so to speak, if you'll forgive the pun. Actually, the pun wasn't intentional. I actually think there is some method to his madness. And one conspiracy theory, which has been bandied about by Trump supporters, including in Congress, in the aftermath of uh, last week's riot, comes directly out, directly out of the playbook of Hitler's Reichstag fire in 1933. The claim, which has actually been put forth by Representative Matt Gates of Florida, that the violence in the Capitol building was actually not carried out by Trump supporters. It was carried out by <coughs> Antifa as it is called, <laughs> who disguised themselves as MAGA heads when they ransacked the Capitol building. So carrying out a violent attack on the seat of the legislative branch of government and then blaming it on your left-wing enemies is directly out of the, the playbook of the Reichstag fire. If you know your history and you know what happened in uh, Berlin in February 1933. But the burning of the Reichstag fire, you know, at least it was kind of, you know, it was, it was an arson attack. It was a clandestine attack 
And it wasn't completely, you know, reality denying to try to blame it on a communist low and attacker. This was a case, what we saw last week in Washington was a case of mob violence, of organized mob violence. And there isn't any question whatsoever that it was carried out by Trump's minions. So this is a, you know, a particularly post-truth variety <laughs> or, or variant on, you know, on the fascist playbook. I mean, just shameful. These people are, their, their contempt for reality itself literally puts the Nazis to shame. Here, this is what uh, Representative Matt Gates told the, uh, the Washington Times. Some of the people who breached the Capitol today were not Trump supporters. They were masquerading as Trump supporters and, in fact, were members of the violent terrorist group Antifa, quote-unquote. For those of you who are not familiar, Antifa is actually short for anti-fascist, and it's not even an organized group. It's more of an um, informal international network of people who... Uh, show up to counter-demonstrate when the Nazis come to town. A completely honorable tradition. And, you know, portraying them as, you know, some kind of uh, mysterious terrorist group or, or conspiracy is just itself pretty Orwellian. They used to be pronounced Antifa, which at least is more redolent of the actual root of the term, anti-fascist. Somehow this, uh, you know, neologistic, uh, newfangled uh, pronunciation, Antifa, has taken hold, which I'm not very happy about because it further removes the word from its original meaning of anti-fascist and allows it to be distorted like this. If we had resisted the temptation of neologism and just called ourselves anti-fascists, it wouldn't be quite so easy, at least, for these fascists and I will argue that Matt Gates is definitely using fascistic propaganda here to get away with these kind of distortions. But I'll resist the temptation to rant about that any further. Okay, and what this, um, this Gates critter was spewing is particularly egregious. But what just about all of the Republicans said in the endless, tiresome back and forth during the debate over the article of impeachment was almost as noxious. Now, I applaud the 10 Republicans who broke ranks with the party and voted for impeachment, which is 10 more than last time when Trump was impeached over uh, the Ukraine scandal a little over a year ago. There were no Republicans who broke ranks. 10 more than last time? Okay, I'll grant them that. And truly, I applaud Liz Cheney and the rest of those 10 who broke ranks and voted for impeachment. I really do. But um, the rest of them, the arguments which they made, and I mean almost every damn one of them made, over and over and over again, for hours as the debate went on, Republican representative after Republican representative made this scurrilous pseudo-argument, which is really, really dangerous, which is engaging in what's called what about Uri, and uh, changing the subject from Trump's attempted coup to the Democrats also supposedly calling for, you know, uprisings, which is a reference to uh, support which was expressed by uh, Democratic lawmakers over the summer for the Black Lives Matter protests. And I would argue that, yes, we saw an uprising over the summer. 
there was a Black Lives Matter uprising. I called it an uprising immediately, because that's what it was. There were mass protests in cities across the country, contests with the police for control of public space. It was an uprising, and it was damn appropriate. One might even say overdue. And it is critical that we reject this sinister false equivalency, which would equate an uprising against police terror and systemic racism with an uprising which is aimed at subverting the democratic process and forestalling the democratic transition and attempting to negate the popular mandate. And I'm really disappointed that none of the Democrats, when they had the microphone, when they had the floor, called out this propaganda subterfuge. They just kind of ignored it. And maybe they felt that, you know, they wouldn't stoop to dignify it with a response. But I feel that it needs to be called out. And a lot of these Republicans are dredging up a, um, a quote from Nancy Pelosi back in 2018, when she said, quote, I don't know why there aren't more uprisings all over the country. Maybe there will be, end quote. And this was said in response to the revelations that Immigration Customs and Enforcement ICE was putting kids in cages. And similarly, many of these Republicans are uh, invoking the call by Maxine Waters, again, in response to the revelation of ICE keeping kids in cages, that if you see anybody from, uh, you know, the Trump cabinet in a restaurant or a department store at a gasoline station, you get out there and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore anywhere, end quote. Now, I'm sorry, there isn't any equivalence here. An uprising, quote unquote, as if harassing somebody in a restaurant is an uprising, an uprising against putting kids in cages does not equal an uprising against a legitimate election. And confronting the architects of, you know, the policy of putting kids in cages in restaurants does not equal an attempted coup d'etat. Or this is really dangerous, bogus equivalism, and it needs to be called out. And if anything, the Democrats have been too timid in the face of Trump fascism. An uprising against an authoritarian regime is not to be equated with one in support of an authoritarian regime. Now, I'm just going to make another little historical analogy here. In July 1936, there were two uprisings in Spain. First, there was the fascist military uprising of Generalissimo Francisco Franco and his co-conspirators, who called the soldiers out of the barracks to overthrow the civilian authorities and depose the duly elected democratic government of Spain. And they succeeded in about half of the country, precipitating the Spanish Civil War, which lasted for three years. And in the areas where they did not succeed, and in the areas where democracy was saved, it was also because of an uprising, most famously in Barcelona, but elsewhere in Spain as well. The workers and common people took to the streets and erected barricades and broke into the armories and the gun shops and seized arms and held a counter-insurrection to that of Franco and his fascists. That was an uprising as well, but it was an uprising which was to be supported. 
It was an uprising in defense of democracy, not an uprising in defense of fascism. And the notion that all uprisings are to be, you know, painted with the same broad brush and to be judged on the same terms is dangerous nonsense. And more people need to be calling it out. And before I wind down here, just to bring the conversation back to what may or <laughs> hopefully may not be unfolding over the course of the next five days, probably you're all aware of this, but I'll just read uh, <clears throat> one line that was reported in the Huffington Post earlier this week. Capitol Police briefed Democrats on Monday night about three more potentially gruesome demonstrations planned in the coming days with one plot to encircle the U.S. Capitol and assassinate Democrats and some Republicans, presumably those 10 who broke ranks and voted for impeachment. And perhaps also Mike Pence, who notoriously they were, you know, calling for his hanging during the, uh, the events of January 6th because he upheld the Constitution and would not interfere with Congress counting the electoral votes, legitimately cast for Joseph Biden. So hold on to your hats, is all I can say. On a glimmer of hope, I'll point out that the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Miley, who is the last member of the top Pentagon brass, who is still standing after the rest, right up to the Secretary of Defense, having been purged by Trump over the course of the past couple of months for perceived insufficient loyalty. He just released a statement in response to what happened at the Capitol building last week, stating quite clearly that he does not want the military involved in Trump's attempted coup. And some of the wording is quite very, very, very clearly, he stops just short of actually <laughs> being completely 100% explicit, but very clearly aimed at Trump and his poochist design. I quote, the American people have trusted the armed forces of the United States to protect them and our Constitution for almost 250 years. As we have done throughout our history, the U.S. military will obey lawful orders from civilian leadership, support civil authorities to protect lives and property, ensure public safety in accordance with the law, and remain fully committed to protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The violent riot in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021 was a direct assault on the U.S. Congress, the Capitol building, and our constitutional process. End quote. So he's pretty clearly, you know, letting Trump know here that he, at least, General Miley, doesn't have his back. So is there hope that if Trump does try to execute the remaining steps in his coup d'etat that the generals will refuse his orders? Yes, there is, which is why the second impeachment was so important, to further undermine his command authority. But please don't act like it's a given and not a really big deal for the brass to tell the president no. And as I've been saying for months, when General Miley is removed, then all bets are off. Now, we're in the final countdown here, just five days to go. Hopefully, it's not going to happen. But if Trump does remove Miley, then you really got to hold on to your hat. 
And as to the inauguration day itself, now just five days away, well, I'll just point out that uh, in my uh, commentary, my writing and podcasting over the course of the past four years of the Trump presidency, I have uh, repeatedly invoked two works of fiction, two works of um, future fiction or political satire written in the 20th century about um, what it could look like if a right-wing dictatorship was consolidated in the United States. And one of those is It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, 1935, published just two years after Hitler came to power. And its title, quite pointedly, taking a swipe at the precepts of American exceptionalism, and the other being The Iron Heel by Jack London, published way back in 1908, before um, classical fascism, per se, really even existed, but definitely um, predictive of it. And uh, in both of these books, written respectively, uh, you know, a generation apart, 1908 and 1935, it is post-electoral violence in Washington, D.C. that provides the expedience for the right-wing takeover. If you have time, check these books out of the library over the course of the next five days or look up the text online. I think they're both, uh, the, the complete text of both of them should be online. And read about what happens on Inauguration Day, which ends up being the death knell of democracy. Now, I want to reiterate again, I am not predicting any particular outcome on or before January 20th. I am warning, not predicting, but warning of the possibility, all too real, that Trump and such collaborators as he can muster will attempt to consolidate their coup. I am warning of this in the hopes that with vigilance, the coup can be defeated. But the bitter irony is, is that if the vigilant pro-democracy forces succeed and Trump is sufficiently isolated that the coup attempt is either abandoned or fails, then all of the knee-jerk naysayers and denialists will come out of the woodwork to say that they are vindicated and the threat was never real. Which is why raising the alarm is a thankless job. Because I ultimately hope not to be vindicated, obviously. And I hope that all of these knee-jerk naysayers and denialists are going to get the last laugh on me. <laughs> Boy, do I ever hope that. So. Raising the alarm is a thankless job, but somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And the more people who raise the alarm, the more likely it is that the elements of the military and security forces who may be on the fence will find the courage and the wherewithal to refuse unlawful orders from the aspiring fascist dictator, Donald Trump. Hashtag Stop the coup. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time. <laughs>